Hey guys, welcome to the Lifesaver podcast. That's Lifesaver with a hyphen and Savor with an O. Lifesaver is dedicated to appreciating life. I'm your host, Eric Victor Reed, and here on Lifesaver, we like to talk about life. We talk about ideas, perspectives, experiences, and even some wisdom about how to live with a sense of peace, freedom, and exhilaration. We look for life lessons and ways to love life. Please join me as we delve into the good stuff. We're speaking with my mother, Christine Mikulishek. For most of her life, she's been a professional sculptor and nomadic adventurer. We explore her life and life lessons over four episodes. This episode covers her early years, from her childhood to her early 20s, when she finally has me, her son. In this episode, we'll explore her sun-drenched childhood in Sequoia National Park her later struggles against conformity, and her choice to break free and pursue her own path. I hope you enjoy her remarkable journey. There's lots to learn and reflect on over the next hour, so let's jump right in. I have with me Chris McCoolishek, Christine McCoolishek, person extraordinaire. <laughs> My mom, <laughs> life adventurer, mm. artist, uh, and more. So welcome. And very lucky mom. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I'm lucky to be here because of you. Anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you doing? In life? Yeah, today. Yeah, today. Life, whatever. Oh, okay, well, I'm doing good. I just keep doing as much as I, apparently, since you're getting older, I must be getting older, too. Oh, and, is that the way it works? And your kids, well, luckily, they're getting older, but we're not, right? Yeah, that's Any, right. Anyway, the, the, your kids, your wonderful, my awesome grandchildren, are just getting older. Wow, and they're so tall and beautiful and interesting. Anyway, so getting older is, is, is different, but... I kind of look at it as it's still life, you know. I just keep doing as much as I can do, and that's a lot, as it turns out. Yep. So um, I'll just keep doing that until I can't, I suppose. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan to me. Unfortunately, the end might come someday, but part of the deal, I guess. So. I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Doug said, you know, that's part of the contract. Everything that lives has to die someday. But I'm, I'm not thinking about that. Let's dig into a little bit about your past. Um, if we can. When were you born? Um, I was born on November 4th, uh, November 4th, uh, 1946. So a year after World War II was over. Yeah. And my parents so grew you're up. A, officially baby boomer. Oh, I'm at the leading edge of yeah. the baby boomers. Yeah. <laughs> and and by the way, I, I was being at the leading edge. I saw all the younger baby boomers doing their foolishness, you know, all the... Right. The hippie. You were the more mature baby boomer. I was. I was older and wiser the whole time. No, Sorry. actually, I was busy going, like working my way through college and um, watched. Uh, I was in San Francisco when all the flower children stuff happened. And I watched, like, really? <laughs> you know, watched it all go on. And I, I, people were offering me just a little side note people would offer me a sugar cube with lsd <laughs> acid on it like every day you know or they tell me about the trip they had that night yeah. before and oh man you should do you know and i thought well i'm really too busy you yeah. know <laughs> get lost in that for very long because i was working nights and going to engineering school days and anyway um yeah well, let me just place the context uh, 1967 is officially the summer of love oh. and you were 21 so you're a Wow. You weren't 17, 18, 19. You were right. 21. So you're a couple of years ahead, kind That's of right. like, you know what? I, I got stuff to do. I got to make a living and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One, and so one of the, um, I mean, I'm not like hexing drugs in general, but one of the things that I moved to San Francisco because I loved it. Uh, I had other options for schooling, but there was a uh, art school there. And then I went to engineering school there. But what I saw happen from 1965 until I left in 1968 or nine was I just actually I moved away from there just about seven months before you were born in, in July of 69. What I saw happen was that the, the city just 
became a terrible place to live anymore. When I went there, it was, you know, just beautiful and elegant. And it was the most European city and in a good way, you know, in America and really lots of character. And then what I saw happen when the flower children came, the drug dealers followed them, of course, to Mm -hmm. sell their drugs. And then they started finding dead bodies in store, you know, in alleyways and and everywhere. And Summer of love is over. Oh, man. And and so I saw that. And I got mugged. My roommate and I got mugged twice. And I almost died while I was working at my job that I was, you know, making my living at. (laughs) I was working a job and a couple of guys came in to rob the place and they had a knife and... Anyway, so, but survived lots of things. And so did you, by the way, (laughs) because I didn't know it yet, but I was pregnant with you when that happened. (laughs) Anyway, it became a really scary place, uh, San Francisco, because of the, all that. But anyway, that's a, so I grew up actually in the fifties, which is, they considered at the time, you know, it was like a moral, normal, mainstream American values kind of time. Mm -hmm. And they had some good music in the fifties, you know, that was good. But then also that that's when all the parents were getting all upset over the the, the sexiness of the rock and roll yeah. movement. You know, it's like parents get upset about stuff. Every know, generation. Every generation, right? And but but it was a weird time. So the year after I, I really upset me that I, I when I found out that a year after I graduated high school in nineteen sixty four, that was the first year that they let girls wear pants to school. Oh man. That's how much you the culture that. has changed. Yeah. yeah. One one day a year, Sadie Hawkins Day, we could wear jeans to school. Yeah. That was it, you know. That was a big deal. Yeah. And boy has how the culture's changed. And so the good there's a lot of good changes. Like I mean I got sent home from school once for they measured from the floor up and found that my my skirt was like an inch above the middle of my knee. And Bad they sent me home to change. No kidding. I mean, <laughs> stupid stuff. So there was a good reason for the social revolution, a lot of good reasons for it. But it, like so many revolutions, social revolutions, it just swung too far in the other yeah. direction. Revolutions in general need to have some very mature, wise people in charge of them if you're going to have one. Yeah. Sort of like we had in the American Revolution, in my opinion. Otherwise, you end up with... Bad results. <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, let's go back in time a little bit to, I know, one of your favorite times in life, which is where you grew up. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, I was so fortunate to have a sun-drenched early childhood. Until I was about nine, we lived, uh, my father was the facilities manager at a hot springs resort. It was a hot springs resort in the Sierra Mountains, Southern Sierra Mountains, in Sequoia National Park, actually. I right. went to a one-room schoolhouse. We lived in a little cabin. Were you born up there, or were you, did you move up there? No, I was young. I was about four Okay. when we moved up where did there. You move, where did you live before that? Um, El Monte. That's where I was. I was actually born in a hospital in Alhambra, but it's east of down. It's east of Los Angeles. Right. Okay. About a half hour. Okay. So you came from the streets of El Monte. Uh, <laughs> um, and then you went to the sun-drenched sequoias. Oh, sun-drenched yeah. childhood. I went from to... From four to nine? Yeah, about that. So about five years you got there. Okay. Oh. So... There was an Olympic. It was a hot spring, so it was a it was a naturally heated Olympic sized pool with a bunch of wading pools, and all the Armenians from Fresno used to go up there. And actually, as soon as there were cars in the twenties, it was very popular. People would go up and stay for the weekend. They go up from L.A. and stay for the weekend, but it was a long drive from there. It's San Joaquin Valley, um, but it was up into the Sierras from there. So we had lots of snow in the winter. By the way, it's the place where the giant sequoias. The giant redwoods are, I used to stand there and I can remember how my neck hurt, bending, trying to bending my head back so far to try and see the tops of them. Those guys are like 2000 years old. I always felt really safe with those trees. (laughs) Anyway. Um, So yeah, talk about that, that time. I went to a one room schoolhouse. We, we walked, of course, of course we walked a mile to school. Of course. (laughs) Cause Yeah. So we walked, there were three, I have an older brother and sister, and we all went. So this one-room schoolhouse was great. Kindergarten, there's about 40 kids, kindergarten through eighth grade, and one teacher, Mr. Sowell. And so the older kids helped teach the young kids how to read, do math and stuff. And we learned a lot about social interaction from that, too. Um, Like, for example, one day when a fourth grader, and I was like a second grader, fourth grader, pushed me down to get to jump the line for the 
drinking fountain because it's pretty hot, dry there in the in the non-winter months. And I still remember feeling like big tears coming down my face and like that was so mean. And of course, he was way bigger than me, so there's nothing I could do. But Billy Wingate, I'll never forget his name, the eighth grader. He came over and he picked up Randy by the scruff of the <laughs> neck, literally by his shirt, picked him up and shook him and said, you don't pick on little kids and dropped him in the dirt. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and then he picked, Billy picked me up and put me back in line where I was supposed to be. So we learned, the thing is, I believe that it's good to have kids of different ages in like neighborhood schools where they they can play together after school because they live close. I mean, there might be a lot of arguments against this, but if you have a spread of ages, they, they, there's a social interaction that is more like the real world. And you learn really good lessons hmm. about behavior. Hmm. Like if you're a bully, you get put down by the older kids right away. You can't pick on your f- fellow fourth graders because there's only a couple of fourth graders. Yeah, right. <laughs> and there's yeah. all the older kids who are going to look out for the little kids. And yeah. it's a good deal. And the other thing that's interesting, by the way, we learned everything out of workbooks. We get a box, kind of like you had with Calvert years later. They get a we get a box with our grade, but there was no limit to how fast you could go through the grades. It just mm-hmm. depended on yourself, yeah. and so you could work independently a lot. Yeah. And when we when my parents made the terrible mistake, <laughs> which I'm thir- sure they thought was practical, of moving down to back down to Southern California when I was uh, was going into fourth grade, I think fourth or fifth grade. Anyway, they we all had to test. For because we'd had this substandard, we'd gone to this substandard school, right? So we all had to test to be admitted, but all three of us tested higher than our age grade. Yeah, that's usually the way it works. I'm such a fan of so called <laughs> substandard schools, you know, the smaller neighborhood schools, one te- good teacher, you know. Yeah, so it was great. We had lots of snow in the winter, hot, dry, thunderstorm country in the summer. And the thunderstorms were bad in some ways because they would start forest fires sometimes, but it was just a great life. Some of those hot days, you know, at the end of our school, sometimes we'd make a science field trip on a hot day that we'd go down to Deer Creek and the little kids would carry the jars and the big kids would get the specimens to put in the jars for our, our, we had a little building, corrugated metal building that we called the science room and Mm -hmm. it had terrariums with snakes and Oh, did I mention that we passed by tarantulas sunning themselves on the rocks as we were walking to school? But anyway, we'd go, we'd have the science field trip and we'd walk along the creek, which is always kind of cool. And we could walk in the creek too. And we'd pick up these specimens and put them in the jars. And we finished up our science field trip at the swimming pool. And of course, we all had our bathing suits on under our clothes. Wow. And so. <laughs> That's like a great day. And then we just swam until yeah. it was dinner time, you know? It was, yeah. yeah. What a great period of life. Yeah, but it was a substandard school. Yeah. <laughs> but not a substandard life. It was a way above standard life. Yeah. 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 Um, let me just bring in, I mean, eventually you didn't know it at the time, but you were going to become an artist, a professional sculptor and, mm. um, and other mm. uh, painting and stuff like that. I remember a story you telling about seeing statues in a graveyard. And, um, ah, yes. Was that during this period or was it later? No, it was after we moved to Southern okay. California. Right. So my mother and her sister... We went on this field trip to see, there was a reproduction of Da Vinci's Last Supper, full size, that had been commissioned by Forest Lawn Cemetery. Forest Lawn Cemetery had commissioned sculptures and paintings for many years, decades. And they have these buildings that have works of art. So they decided, because by the way, my parents, I grew up in a a Lutheran Christian home. And did that stick? No, no. I. What would you consider yourself? Oh, I've been an atheist since I was 17. Oh, okay. Gotcha. No, because it wasn't tenable. I mean, it's just not. I figured out when I was in school, I used to love to read all the mythologies the Norse mythology and the Irish, you know, and the Greek and Roman mythologies. I love to read those stories. And of course, because I grew up in a Christian household, we went to church every Sunday and I had to, 
I had to learn, I had to take catechism classes, which means you read the whole Bible and you have to learn all the Bible stories. And so I knew all that stuff from growing up with it. And at a certain point, you know, I, well, I was asking, even in catechism, I was asking questions that nobody wanted to hear. The people were teaching, you know, well, they just didn't want me to be asking questions like that because stuff, if stuff doesn't make sense to me, I have this kind of ruthless, logical mm-hmm. mind. And if it doesn't make sense, then I'm going to ask, you know, well, that doesn't make sense. And so they didn't want to hear about that because, as I found out later, you have to have faith. And if you don't have faith, then it doesn't work for you. Well, that's what happened. I didn't have faith. None of it worked for me. And I saw and I saw people. So I can't stand hypocrisy. <laughs> and I got a belly full of that in church. And the other thing is I saw people very close to me wasting their lives because they were waiting to hold mm. hands with Jesus in the next one. And yeah. anyway, the whole thing just didn't add up. Well, it, that definitely touches on Lifesaver, you know, wasting your life. And, um, yeah. This precious time you have alive, you know, and not living it fully because you're you're living according to artificial standards that right. have nothing to do with who you really are and what you most want to get out of life. Um, and basically just feeling guilty all the time. Um that's just a terrible way to go through life. On that note, I want to say, so you didn't, you were not burdened with growing up in a in a Christian home, but so you probably, you didn't have to have this like epiphany, which, which I had. I have to tell you that w- there was all that stuff that the shoulds and the haftas and the better not and don't you dares and the, all the, the rules and the commandments and the stuff that you, all this baggage, right? Mm-hmm. And once I walked away from it, there was a moment when, and ever since then, basically, I've had that exhilarating sense of freedom. Yeah. Yes, there are consequences for my choices and actions, and I have to deal with right. them in this life, and nobody else. It's, I'm not do I'm not living for anyone else's rules or standards or fear of their judgment or like there were things that I'd better not do or I would, I would burn in hell for eternity. Well, you'd lose, you get to just shed all of that. It was like, can you imagine? I felt like as light as a feather, just flying on the Anything is possible. Um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. uh, It was all up to me. I couldn't, I couldn't pray to God to help me out. But I also, I mean, one of the things, by the way, that, you know, didn't add up to me uh, about religion is people say, well, God's, God's will be done. Well, so for example, if somebody, if there's a, if there's a car wreck or a plane wreck or a train wreck or something, you know, some acts, horrible accident happens and let's say five people die, but one of them survives. And if he's Christian, he, this just rankers me. Ter- is that the right word? Terribly. When I hear this person saying, well, I think God spared me because he has, you know, a plan for me that's something I'm a mission that I need something I need to accomplish yet in my life. And my response was, so what about those other poor souls? They're just chopped liver, right? They're not worth saving God by God because they're not as good as you are. It's just so arrogant. So I had a real resentment of religion for a long time. Now I'm very, I, I can laugh about it. I'm very peaceful, but it was, it was painful. But my brother is a retired Lutheran minister. And it's interesting to me that he's known that I was an atheist since forever, you know, since the beginning. And he's the one who said, well, you just have to have faith. And I said, and I don't. And he said, and I do. And we smelled each other and hugged and that was it. You know, he's okay with it. He told me later, years later, after he'd been a minister for about 25 years, that if there were any right rules, I was making a joke about I wouldn't see the rest of you guys, you know, later on <laughs> after we kick, kick it. And I was laughing and he said, and he smiled and said, Chris, if there's any right rules for getting into heaven, you should get there before half of my congregation. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. He's yeah. more secular than any minister I ever talked to yeah. now, after all those years as a professional. Yeah. So, yeah. He's he's seen a lot. Yeah, he's not righteous. He used to be righteous. Yeah. He's not anymore. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I like I like Ken a lot. Yeah, he's a good guy. Well, let's get back to okay. uh, the sunny days of Sequoia. Actually, we were at the Forest Lawn Cemetery. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um and right, sorry. Uh, you were seeing sculptures. Okay, I want to tell you about that. So, we went there to actually to see this reproduction of of Da Vinci's Last Supper. 
and and we did in this big auditorium and they and it was on a stage and they opened the curtains and the, the uh, music and stuff we saw that well that wasn't thrilling but what was was the, walking around the painting the painting yeah. what was thrilling was when we were walking around on the pathways and i and and i stood there at, in front of what i found out was a life-size reproduction of michelangelo's david and i was short enough that i could basically just see the toes you know, kind of mm-hmm. looking across at, at the toes. And the toes were absolutely realistic. I mean, it looked like toenails and yeah. toes. And I asked my mother what that was made of. Oh, and the other thing is it was this brilliant white, like shining, sparkling in the sun. And I asked my mother, what's it made of? And she said, marble. And I said, what is that? What is marble? I knew marbles you play marble games with, you know. <laughs> well, and she said, it's a kind of... St- a kind of rock. And I thought, well, how can they possibly make rock look like toes? And I w- and the rest of my life, I was fascinated until I finally learned with how marble is carved. How Because after that, then I started really noticing marble sculptures everywhere. Yeah, that's a really interesting sort of epiphany moment. Uh, and I was just, uh, a little bit curious, you know, do you feel like it was just the total package that had an impression on you, or was it the um, oh wow, I can a person can create perfection like craftsmen who just they get a deep satisfaction out of what you can do yourself with a material uh, with your finger uh-huh. with your fingers mm. and your hands and your mm. muscles and and the feel of clay and the feel of you know boy that's such a marble so know. that's a really good question I I never thought of it that way but I want to point out I want I want to just say at this point because I think it's relevant two things one is I had been drawing like most kids draw when oh, they're little kids, right. right? And they they draw and they scribble and they fill up a lot of you know sheets of paper with with stuff. How old were you when you went to this forest? Line? I was about nine. Okay, because uh, it was probably in the first year that we moved down to gotcha. Southern California. Okay. So it would have been nine or ten, but no yes. older than that. Okay, and since I was since I can remember, I had loved to draw, and a lot of kids, you know, every kid draws. But with me, it was, okay. So I loved horses. So I tried to draw horses because I like to draw. I wanted to have a horse more than anything for years. And so because I couldn't have a horse, I would draw horses. And you know, it felt like having one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's different. That's a key probably to why I pursued art. So the thing with horses is I kept trying to make a more beautiful horse because if you want, if it feels like having that horse, what do you, you want the most beautiful horse right. you could dream of, right? right? And so I kept, long after other kids stopped scribbling or drawing or coloring or whatever they did, I kept trying to draw the most perfectly beautiful horse yeah. throughout my childhood. Yeah. So that's one piece of, I'm answering your question about my so response like, to the David. It's like a, a, you're concretizing for all time an, an ideal of, uh, yeah. of, of reality that, that you value. Yeah. And so it's not like this fleeting thing that you very rarely get to see or feel in life. It's there. Exactly. Whether it's stone or on paper. It concretizes. It concretizes. And yeah. and if you're trying to capture something beautiful, it's usually such a fleeting thing. Exactly. So this is like freezing it for all time. That's right. what you just said, right? Yeah. That's a good point. The other piece of this, and that's why it gets hard for me to actually come up with a single answer, is my father was a master craftsman. Right. And I was like a puppy following him around for as long as I can remember. I would hang out. The other my siblings did not, but for some reason I had a fascination with watching him whatever he was making, even if he'd never made anything, made a thing before, he'd read books, he'd learn how to do it, and then he would gather his tools and he would do it perfectly. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me. Uh, I think there's so much personality involved in that sort of thing. Of uh, Well, you go to the Myers-Briggs you know, personality tests or, or similar tests, um, and one of the factors they, they look at is how much you are sensorily motivated in life versus uh, conceptually. Um, I think you and your dad got a lot of satisfaction out of the sort of the physical, uh, the materials, the materials, and and executing thing with excellence in the physical sort of craftsman kind of way. And and he was a, truly a fine um, craftsman. I think it's because he cared so much about it. You know, I think you're a very fine artist, um, and I think that comes from you uh, just really from a young age bonding with that kind of experience and and caring about that kind of experience, which I think is so personality 
driven. Yeah, I agree. So one thing, it's an act of will to make something as good as it can be. It's not, people talk a lot about talent, but what I know is you have to acquire a skill set. You have to learn how to use the tools that you need to achieve, but you have to have a vision and you, and it, what it takes is the will to make it as good as it can be. It doesn't, it's not accidental. It's not like, oh, well, you're so talented that you can make that really good. Because the truth is I struggle. My first attempt, my first pass, I call it, at making a sculpture is usually quite deficient. So I stand back and see what I need to fix. And then I spend whatever, you know, six days, six months, six years fixing it until it's what I want it to be. We were talking about becoming aware of artistic stuff. And you were mentioning that you were drawing anyway, horses and such. Mostly horses. And then uh, you went to Forest Lawn and you were very impressed with the fact that stone can become like a living thing. It seemed like a miracle to me because I'd been climbing on rocks, you know, up there in Sequoia. We'd, we were, there was this gang of kids, you know, that we'd climb all over the place. And so I knew what rocks were. And it just seemed like a miracle to me that you could, somebody could shape rock to look like hair and eyes and feet and fingers, you know. So that, that had quite an impression on you. Yeah. Before we leave Sequoia, are, are there other memories of that time you want to share? Oh, my. Lots. I remember dusty thunderstorm afternoons when mom, our moms would send us out with, with little containers to pick marion berries that grew wild along the road to bring back, and she'd make pie. I remember that this has always kind of rankled me because I wanted to go fishing, but the dads and sons went out trout fishing in the rivers and come back with, they come back with buckets of rainbow trout. And so I remember cleaning and flowering and frying rainbow trout and the smell, I can smell it just thinking about it. What I realized later is we had such, it felt like such riches. It was like the greatest childhood you could experience, you could dream of. And yet there was very little cash flow. And maybe somewhere it stuck in my head, just viscerally or in my gut, viscerally, that you could have an abundance of riches and have a very rich life without a lot of cash. A lot of people would think of it as a poorness, but it wasn't. It was the best. And it was a rich in experience. And it ruined me. Uh, this I found out later. It really did ruin me for a more mainstream life, like living in the suburbs or in you know an apartment somewhere. Because it just was, well, and I have to say, I must have been a pain in the butt to my parents because for several Christmases after, we, after they decided to move back down to Southern California, I was always, when are we going back home? It wasn't just Christmas. It was, you know, when can we go back home? And for me, home was always California Hot Springs. You, had, I think, at one point you had told me about uh, ice boxes, and oh yeah, they had a an ice house. There was an ice house, and my dad, being the facilities manager, he he was the one who went into the. He maintained it, made sure there was always steady supply of. Somehow, it made ice. So I was in there with him many times when he was cutting blocks of ice and he'd wrap them in burlap and load them in the truck. He had an old like Model T Ford pickup truck. That's what their fleet was there. Black with California hot springs painted on the side Hmm. and wooden rails, actually nice uh, varnished wood rail sides on them. He had ice tongs. That's the first time I ever saw that used. It's like a sweet hook, you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, for carrying logs, but it was an ice tongs. And so he could carry a block of ice half as big as this table it was pretty heavy and he'd wrap them in and he'd carry it and he had the burlap spread out in the back of the truck and because he had to do a lot of this so he was pretty organized and then he'd wrap them in burlap and deliver them to where they were wherever they were going and at our cabin we had very rudimentary electricity our refrigerator was literally an ice box mm-hmm. i didn't know what a regular refrigerator you know was like mm-hmm. uh until later. Of course, we didn't have TV or I don't know if we even had radio. Yeah, so I know that you have this. Uh, you're talking um, probably early 50s. This was the early 50s, yeah. yeah. Oh, one of the other great memories I have to share with you. We had lots of snow. I love that kind of climate. Hmm. Hot, dusty, thunderstorm summers and snow, lots of snow in the winter. And it's so much snow that one night, uh, one side of the, the cabin roof caved in from the snow load. Hmm. 
as luck would have it, it was like right over our, I shared a bedroom with my sister. I shared a big double bed actually with my sister. And I remember dad yelling, girls, get under the bed. Mm. <laughs> so we were down there under the bed. We heard all the men's voices, you know, they were, they got the snow off and then they just hung tarp, secured tarps over the opening and until they could, it was in the middle of the night mm. until they could deal with, you know, rebuilding the roof. Good dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what, and one of the other things is, oh gosh, I remember the local dairy rancher would deliver our milk and glass jugs. Mm -hmm. And the great treat was in the winter because the cream would all Mm -hmm. go to the top. And the winter, of course, when it got cold, it would expand. So the little paper lid stopper Mm -hmm. would be like sitting an inch and a half above the top of the bottle. And so simple breakfast of mush, of oatmeal, which most people would think was kind of low class. Yeah, but my mom would give a spoonful of straight cream on each bowl of oatmeal. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, good. And another thing is we mom would when when there was snow, a lot of snow, mom would say, "Okay, go out there where the there's that drift and dig down deep into the drift so you don't get dirty snow and fill up these cups, huh. these mugs." And we'd do that and bring them back in and she'd pour real maple syrup uh-huh. over the top. Yeah, so that doesn't, you know, I learned how you can have a fantastic rich life with yeah. very little money. Uh, anything else uh, before we move to West Covina? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you what I called it for years. Anyway, uh, no, I can't think of anything else okay. right now, except I have to say that I was very upset about leaving there when my parents decided they had to move. And I probably was a pill about it. But I also have to say that I thank them from the bottom of my heart, since I was old enough to recognize the choice they made to even move us up in the first place, mm-hmm. that that was pretty adventurous and especially with uh three kids oh yeah and i know my dad wasn't making a whole lot of money and my mom was just you know home with the kids so that's all we had but we got like free ice cream cones (laughs) free swimming in olympic size pool i mean everything that's important to a kid yeah Yeah. and the and a one-room schoolhouse where we got had a lot of fun and a good education. The other thing I, I have to say that one of the things my takeaways when I got older and looked back on it is how good an education we got was made possible by parents being totally involved. Mm-hmm. Like they would all show up and build sets for for plays. Heck, they built the stage that we had our little school plays on. They built the corrugated tin science shed that we had. We couldn't have done it when you got one teacher and 45 kids grade kindergarten through eight. The parents have to be really involved. Mm-hmm. And it really is good for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. Okay. And then your parents decide. Why did they decide to move to West Covina? Well, at the time I thought it was just a miserable, bad idea. And then I found out later it was practical that, oh, this is a terrible thing. My mom said something about she saw her children growing up like wild savages. (laughs) And of course, my heart just sank when I heard that. What? Are you kidding? We were having the time of our lives. But uh, I think part of it was practical. I think they they just... My father had uh, earned a teaching certificate from the Santa Barbara Teachers College before we went up to the mountains. I think there was some kind of a time limit on he had to use it before he would have to go back to college and renew it. Hmm. And so they that was that kind of just practical decision for the future. So did he teach? He did. Where did he teach? He got a job teaching, it was called industrial arts at the time, uh, which is perfect for my dad because he could build and make and do anything with his hands and his brain at Andrew Jackson High School in East Los Angeles. And it was, I found out later, it was a very specialized high school for young men who boys, teenage boys, who had been uh, in trouble with the law. <laughs> and he taught there for 25 years. And where where is West Covina? It's um, east of about 25 miles east of um, downtown Los Angeles. Um, So it's a bedroom community. One of many that were being built at the time, actually, my parents bought a new house for $19,000. And was that in a suburb? It's just absolutely. It was just a suburban community. It had no industry. It was just a bedroom community, what they call a bedroom community, yeah. And was it kind of a nice suburb, kind of like um, with... Well, you know, I didn't kids around think and... it was nice. Yeah, there were kids, sure. And uh, um, I walked about a half a mile to the local school. So I went to Cameron School was the elementary school that I went to. And I had some memorable good teachers there. But I'll tell you what my first impression was there. 
I didn't feel sad about being a misfit. I, and it's not like anybody shunned me. I think they were friendly enough. It's just I saw what the values were, you know, what they cared about, mm-hmm. like the right kind of pleated skirt, <laughs> right kind of shoes or mm-hmm. whatever. And I, I thought how sad that was. I thought that they must never have had a creek to play in, that they cared about stuff that to me was like, who cares? You know, yeah. it was like unimportant. And then that, that observation continued pretty much throughout my time in West Covina. But, you know, later on, I got in high school. I My dad helped my sister and I build our own surfboards because there's no way we could afford to buy it. <laughs> he researched it and found out what kind of foam. And we actually shaped the foam. Mm-hmm. He got blanks. Yeah, right. And we and I remember we he figured out how to fix the fin to it. Mm-hmm. And we got to shape them the way we wanted them, like, you less more or less pointy, mm-hmm. more or less curved, wow. you know. Wow. And I still remember shaping that side curve, you know. And it's just maybe that's where my craftsmanship thing came from. I just love. I think certainly <laughs> whether genetics or environment. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, your, your dad had a big influence yeah. on just sort of getting absorbed in shaping materials. There, there's just yeah. a satisfaction or mm-hmm. something in that that not everybody has, you know. Um, I no, I and, know. I, I realized that later on in life. That's just what I grew up with. And so I kind of, my dad was, he had his faults, I found out later. We all do. <laughs> but but I, I was just a great fan. <laughs> I loved hanging out with him and learning how to do stuff. Okay, great. Uh, you went there probably around fourth grade and then all the way to 12th grade. Yep. Um, so that's a good, what, eight years or so? Yeah. Yeah. What are some big things you remember from that eight-year period? You know, it's interesting. I can think of a hundred things. Mm-hmm. I mentioned this to you before. Yeah. A thousand things from my few years up at, in Sequoia, but it's hard to remember very many outstanding things from eight years in West Covina. So let's see. I remember my art teacher. Leland Stronach, hmm. he was, I still remember his name. He was, he had like graying at the temples. He would work on sculpture. Actually, it's the first time I'd ever seen sculpture. I mean, hmm. seen someone make sculpture because that was his thing with sculpture. What kind of grades are we talking about here? This is in high school. High school. Okay. Yeah. I didn't have art classes until I was in high school. Okay. And by that time I was drawing faces hmm. and other things besides horses. I like to draw f- Faces, And so I guess I acquired a a knack for doing portraiture. It turned out later I had a knack for Mm -hmm. it. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah, definitely. You're one of the finest portrait artists I've ever seen. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I, you know, I think that, I think it's an extra thing. You can be, I mean, Michelangelo was a great sculptor, but he couldn't do an accurate portrait because he wasn't that interested in how, in individual differences. He had an ideal, which... It's the only thing. And so it's a matter of interest. I always call good portrait artists kind of nosy. They're like nosy. They're watching. I have been, I've been a people watcher all my life. I'm fascinated with character. and um, The differences. Who, who people are and how they're different, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes I get caught in a restaurant or cafe because I used to hang out and like write and read and stuff in cafes. And, and I'd see something, I'd start staring at a person and they'd finally like, you know, <laughs> Um, take offense, and I and but I learned to carry a business card with me. It says I was. I'm a, I remember as a kid. <laughs> so embarrassing. So embarrassing. Stop staring, mom. <laughs> I know. I know, but I. But then I, if I saw that the person was uncomfortable, I'd go. Over, they caught me, busted, you know. Yeah. And I'd go over and give them my card, and and you know they always found it very flattering when they. When I explained what, that I was fascinated yeah, with the way the light right. was running down the, the wave in their hair. And, and they, oh, I never thought about that. I said, oh, yeah, you know, crazy artists like me were just, just absolutely enthralled with stuff like that. And so then they'd smile and laugh and we'd be friends. Yeah. And they'd want to come over and model for me or something. You know? yeah. <laughs> it turned out great. But just a little aside, one of the thing that you have to do with portraits, I suppose with any art, but especially figurative stuff. You look at things in a different way than just looking at them. Mm-hmm. You 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 don't look at them. You actually observe analytically. You mm-hmm. really do. And I I know what it feels like. It's like I'm looking at your face now, Eric. Yeah. And I'm I'm taking it apart. But I'm looking at profile edges and I'm looking at the shape of the bridge here that, you know, and how yeah. it comes out yeah. over the When you have a you tool, know. you want to use it and you gain that skill, that becomes a tool. And exactly. So you start to enjoy seeing the world that way. Yeah, you get used to it. Using that skill. Actually, I've had some portrait students who have told me by the end of the, the course, 
that they felt embarrassed sometimes because they, they were like looking at people with x-ray vision right. yeah. <laughs> and seeing under, they'd see the skull, you know, because they learn once you've sculpted a skull and you, you learn the bony landmarks, right. you know, that you really need to know to be able to get a portrait right. And they'd find themselves looking at people and basically taking the skin off yeah. and the makeup for sure. Makeup goes first and then the skin comes off and then they're looking at the skull and and then they get creeped out themselves, you know. Yeah. And they go, <laughs> anyway. Well, the, the art class, how long were you in the art classes with that teacher? Um, all through high school. But I have to say that I, I was not a painter. Uh, and most of most of what was done was painting and sort of, you know, high school art classes are general. Mm -hmm. Like you have to do this and that and that. Yeah. And I learned some stuff. Yeah. I learned enough to get a little better. Yeah. 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 How about uh, boyfriends or... Oh, dear. When was your first crush? <laughs> my, first, my first crush, I yeah. know exactly, because I just heard the music from the show. Was it in Sequoia or was it in... Uh... No, okay. it was, no, it was sometime I didn't know. Oh, I went steady with Steve Lambright in fourth grade. Fourth grade. <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't mean anything at all, uh, I found out later. You know, it was just that we were friends. Fourth grade, is that... Uh, we were buddies. West Covina? Yeah. Okay. That was my first year. So I was a newbie and, you know, interesting, more interesting than I became later. Actually, my first sort of distant crush, you know, like maybe you don't know, but girls, teenage girls get crushes. Well, even like eighth graders. They get, oh, now maybe yeah. it's sixth graders. I don't know. Get crushes on... On idols, movie yeah, idols. Definitely. Okay, Nick Adams. You don't even know who that is. Nope. <laughs> I'm ignorant. Johnny Yuma was a rebel. Still don't. Look it up on YouTube. Okay. They still have some of the shows. Look it up on Netflix. Nick Adams played Johnny Yuma the rebel, and that was it. Okay. I yeah. wanted to be a rebel, and he was just the most gorgeous. So everybody, you know, so that's aesthetics, right? Fortunately, we don't all find the same type of look mm -hmm. attractive. Yeah. And so that was the first time I... Or personality. Yeah. Or personality, right. And so he was this kind of, you know, let's see, how do the lyrics go? Panther quick and leather tough. And that was my kind of guy. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was he a pretty boy or was he... Uh... He was blonde with blue eyes, although that's not a requirement for me. But um, yeah, I thought he was... Good looking, so but not, not a like, pretty boy like Re Robert Redford. He was more like Steve McQueen kind of good looking. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right. So there was that. I had a poster of him on my wall. Great. <laughs> but actually. Yeah, what? How old are you here? Oh, gosh. I don't remember. I, whenever the show came out, which is way, probably seventh or eighth grade, something like that. But see, okay. So my parents didn't let me date till I was 16. That was the rule. Yeah. I know it sounds like no. dark ages huh. nowadays, but. Good idea. Yeah. I know. I know. Well, back then, you know, you were like, the worst thing that could happen to you was uh, get pregnant. Well, that's. Yeah. In high school. I mean, but in, in the case of my family, it got even worse that. The added bonus of burning in hell for eternity if you had sex before marriage. So I didn't even know what, yeah, that was all about. But I did have, let's see, my first real boyfriend was Richard Dial, Dick Dial. And he went on to become a doctor, I believe. He was a really nice guy. Hmm. Just a nice guy. How old are you here? I was probably a sophomore in high school. Gotcha. Okay. Well, when are you 16? Is that like end of your sophomore year? Yeah. Junior yeah, year, roughly. yeah. Okay. But once once I got going, then I, I did have boyfriends. Yeah, amazingly. The most amazing thing, actually, was when the student senior student body president, Bill Adams, walked up behind me in the hall one day and said, and I knew him from yearbook, but I didn't know him very well. He was like the student body president, right? And he were walking along and he said, well, um, my senior prom is coming up and, and I was wondering if you'd like to go with me. And, I, and how old are you here? And I think I said, I was a junior. He was junior. a senior. Okay. And I think I managed to say, well, yeah, thank, thank you. I don't know what I said. <laughs> but I remember later thinking, wow, how did that happen? Yeah. Because we'd never dated or anything. I don't know. It was We had a good time. I made a beautiful uh, evening gown for it. Emerald green potus. I made it in my sewing class. They had home ec back then for mm. girls and shop for boys. And it was all very useful later on in life. And I got an A plus on that dress. It was a good job. Anyway, so I went to, so that was amazing. But then I had a boyfriend, a surfer boyfriend named Patrick who had one of those surfer wagons, the woody, mm -hmm. you know, with the yeah. woods, yeah, yeah, panel sides. That's classic. And we'd load our surfboards on top. And, and this is... Uh... 
head down to Manhattan Pier. Yeah, right? where, I, where I used to surf. <laughs> I sat on the beach and watched you surf all those years later when I was visiting from yeah. Italy. Yeah. And you're like, wow, I kind of remember this. This is right. cool, yeah. Um, so, Patrick, is that senior year or is that junior year? That was probably senior year, I'm senior. guessing. And did you stand up on the boards and... Yeah. You were surfing? Yeah, I was never a great surfer, but I did learn to stand up. That's and, great. But, you know, I'm not... I was never very good I'm not extremely so. coordinated. <laughs> <laughs> but I sure had fun, and I've always loved the yeah. water. I was yeah. not afraid of the water. So your senior year is, what, 63? 64. 64, okay. Mm-hmm. Just placing us on time here. 64. Yeah, very interesting. So that's the year the Beatles come... But you weren't really young enough to be get into Beatlemania. <laughs> I was not a, a maniac. So a- after high school, I went to San Francisco, and I saw all that stuff going on. Um, and I went to Fillmore West and, and had a lot of fun dancing to Janice and Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and all those guys. Oh, you were at concerts with those guys? Fillmore West, yeah. I was up and running the years that I was living in San Francisco, but I was, I, I was busy. That was like, I'd have a couple hours and, I mean, and did you see those live? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, oh, you didn't, you probably didn't know that. Janice mm. Jefferson, uh, Grateful, Grateful Dead. Dead and oh gosh, so many others. They probably weren't super famous at the time. But and what's her name? Gracie Slick. Yeah. Grace yeah. Slick yeah. With Jefferson. Yeah. Was that it? Yeah. Because I remember her doing the rabbit thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. I want to step back for a second. When you're in your later years in high school, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do? Not what you would become later, but did you have a sense at that time, oh, this is definitely what I want to do? Or was it just like a lot of people just kind of like, uh, I kind of feel this and I kind of feel that. and I'm not really sure. No, I was sure. Okay. Yeah. It was fashion design. Because what I came to realize later is I basically have a designer kind of mind. Mm -hmm. I like to solve problems creatively. Mm. And a lot of sculpture and painting is that. It's like you get an idea and then you figure out how to make it work. I So my mom was really good seamstress. Mm. She My favorite clothes growing up were the ones that she made for me. She let me go with her and pick out the pattern and the fabric. And she did a beautiful job of making, she'd finish the garment and give it to me. And it was like my favorite stuff. And so she taught me how to sew. And I loved, again, it was crafting. I For me, sewing wasn't just, you know, some housewifey thing. It was a creative mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. the, the, the machine, the, the skill set. So I had sketchbooks as full of designs, fashion designs that I just dreamed up and not, it wasn't like. Uh, at what age did you think you started to get really I think when I was interested end in of junior year, probably. Okay. In my junior year somewhere. In so there. you had a pretty solid senior year of like, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. 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 And so much so that I found a school yeah. where I could take uh, the only school on the West Coast at that time, where you could take a complete 18-month fashion design course. Mm. Everything from original concept to draping to pattern making to tailoring, you Mm. know, actually putting the garment together, making a prototype, altering, adjusting. I learned how to, like, alter something to fit someone perfectly, Mm. you know, all the stuff. I found the school, and it was in L.A. And what is it? It was L.A. Trade Tech. It's still there. Yeah. And it was the only school. They had a complete course. You got a certificate. It was 18 months. And it was in, I loved it because it was intensive. This is how I've always wanted to learn things. Mm -hmm. I go to schools where I can just study the stuff I'm interested Mm -hmm. in and not have to be bogged down in a whole bunch of, you know, general wrecks. Because they wreck you. Kind of like Cody's doing with Friends in Film, right? Exactly. If there's something you're interested in, go find somebody who knows how to do it and learn from them. That was my. Professionally, too. So what I found out, though, when I graduated high school was they didn't have a spot, but I got on the waiting list. Hmm. So then a year later, I was living in San Francisco, and they contacted me and said, we have a spot open. Do you still want to come? And I did. So I moved back down to LA Hmm. and completed the course. You're graduating high school, and you're told that you can't get into this for the first year after high school. Right. What, What were you thinking then? Oh, well, I loved, I always wanted to live in San Francisco. Ah, okay. Always wanted to live in San okay. Francisco. So we had visited a it few times. Like a, it seemed be- like a romantic city. And- no, because my godparents lived ah, up there. okay. Yeah. And when we went up to visit them, it was like, I just fell in love with San Francisco. I always wanted to live there. So that was easy. I packed up a suitcase and went, 
But also there was an art school there. So what I did was I couldn't take the, the design course, but I could take fashion illustration course. So I took life drawing and fashion illustration at night uh, and worked during the day to pay where? for all my business where, and, San, San um, at uh, San Francisco Academy of Art. Ah, okay. It was on Sutter Street then. I don't know okay. where it is now. Yeah, I had to walk through the tenderloin for my evening classes. <laughs> with, nice. You know, bogged down with all kinds of yeah. stuff. I guess you wouldn't survive that now. But Easy at the time, target. you know, the characters would just say, hey. Hey, man. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let me pass. So that's quite an adventure. You, yeah. You're setting out on your own with no real path that's laid out by society or your parents. Well, I hasten to say that... Uh, well, I, I don't hasten to say because I'm not particularly uh, proud of it, but it tells you something about me. Yeah, um, absolutely. I got, because I got decent grades in high school, so I got a state scholarship, full ride scholarship to San Jose State, but I did not want to go to San Jose. <laughs> so I didn't want to go live in San Jose, and I didn't want to take a bunch of, I looked at the curriculum, I studied the curriculum, I didn't want to take a bunch of courses that didn't mean anything to me because yeah. I was just real anxious. So I want to say this, when I was 18... I didn't know what was going to happen or how life was going to unfold exactly. I had an idea of what I wanted to do, and I just felt like life should be a great adventure. I remember that feeling. That's perfect. I remember that feeling. It was so exciting. But that first year, I'm really interested in. Well, right after high school, I went to work at California Hot Springs, where I had lived as a kid that I always thought of was home. So I got to spend like the whole summer away from home with the summer employees, kids mostly, you know, young people like me, stayed in a a bunkhouse. And it was great. It was a good summer. And I enrolled in the local junior college. So one of the things that happened at Mount San Antonio Junior College, I left before the year was out, before I took finals. I left and that's when I packed my suitcase and went to San Francisco. Oh, okay. What was what one of the memorable things about and there wasn't any, you know, big traumatic reason why I left. It was because I was just really bored except for one thing. I uh the first time in my life uh that I got to the experience of turning turning learning how to turn pots on a wheel. Hmm. You use a potter's wheel. And I had a class, it was just an elective class that I stumbled into, but that I would spend hours there. I would miss my next whatever my next class was in the afternoon because I it was addict I was addicted to hmm. it. And it was forming like you mentioned brought up mm-hmm. before, just the feeling yeah. of the material in my hands. And so that was probably my first big exposure to water clay. Yeah. Sort of sensory interaction yeah. with yeah. materials. Yeah. There's a personality for that, I think. And being able to shape it to my will. I wasn't real good at it, but I'd sit there for hours just, you know, it would slump because it wasn't centered enough, and I just kept trying. But most people, you know, they try it and like, oh, that's interesting, whatever. But there's not that um, kind of uh, gut level just like, wow, this really speaks to me. Yeah. Because I'm interacting with things in a certain way that really connects with my cognitive style. Or cognitive style is the way your mind works yeah. naturally interacting with reality, what it prefers, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Some people are very cerebral. Some people are very, like, hands in the mix kind of right. thing. Other people are very social or whatever. But um, that seemed to really speak to your yeah so at that time at that time people young people my age some people were getting hooked on drugs i was getting hooked on tactile experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i was yeah kind of different that way but on the other hand i think there'd be fewer people going into drugs if more of them learned how to make things with their hands but maybe not everybody would get hooked on it i would say uh, more people took the time to explore to figure out who they are yeah I think most people live under artificial expectations from parents, society, whatever. And that leads to a feeling of desperation about life. Like you can't breathe. And so you want to escape it. There's the WTF element. Yeah, exactly. So if I'm not getting deep satisfaction out of life, I might as well escape it into pleasure. Right. No matter how brief. And time and again during that period, because, you know, when I went to San Francisco, it was the beginning of the flower thing going on. And what I saw all around me were people who were like seeking oblivion. And I, you know, tried a few drugs, but I didn't like oblivion. I just wanted to be present. 
because I had fun things to do, I guess. You know, I don't need much. <laughs> Cheap thrills for me, <laughs> like pushing clay around. And, you know. Yeah. Well, you had discovered something yeah, exactly. um, that satisfied you and was somewhat fulfilling. And, and I think a lot of majority of people were pressured to pick a path and um, they don't take that time yeah. to discover what who they are and what really does it for them. Yeah. What really, what, what blows your hair back? You know, right? What really does it for you? Exactly, but it's the greatest wealth, you know. Yep, I think so. Yeah. So you're 17, going on 18, mm -hmm. um, but you go up to San Francisco, mm. and how did you live up there? Okay, well, my brother uh, was at the <laughs> was at the Lutheran Seminary mm. in Berkeley. Oh, okay. And I stayed in the guest room there for a couple of nights. Anyway, he introduced me to these this family Perez. And they had a daughter my exactly my age, Sharon, who became my best friend hmm. and roommate in San Francisco. So they rented me a room, like, uh -huh. right away. So what did you do during that first year in San I Francisco? Had, I had a job. Um, what job? I remember I was working at the Bank Data Processing Center at hmm. night. I'm not really a computer techie, but I actually worked with some of the first computers hmm. that were used That's really uh, in business. Yeah. Because that's only 1964, 65. Yeah, but these computers were like as big as this right. room here. Yeah. And the room was really cold yeah. that you worked you in. You had to wear sweaters yeah. all the time. Yeah. Those things were huge. Yeah, so I did. I learned that work. I, I was working swing shift and taking art classes. One was co trained commercial artists, hmm. which was Academy of Art, which had like classical, you know, traditional, they actually taught you stuff. And the other one was the Institute, San Francisco Art Institute, which everybody said it was one of those places where you go and they say, well, just do your own thing. And I thought, well, you know, I can do my own thing at home <laughs> yeah, in my kitchen. Exactly. Why would I pay money and time to go Teach to me school? Something. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So anyway, and it was really good, by the way, the fashion illustration course. Hmm. I didn't expect much from it except to learn the style of fashion illustration but actually i had a, a wonderful teacher who taught me how to draw with my whole arm instead of my thing mm. i used to make pretty little drawings yeah. with my fingers and my hand pencil right. drawings and she saw that but she saw thank i'm so grateful that she i thought she was picking on me though because she drew a line in front of my feet and like in front of everybody <laughs> and i was so shy and i was just so embarrassed i was yeah. just uh, i felt shamed she drew a line, put tape down on the floor. She said, you may not, and it was like two feet back from my easel, right? <laughs> and she said, you may not step over this line. Yeah. You have to stay behind this line. And she gave me a, like an 18-inch long brush, the longest brush, handled brush I'd ever seen, <laughs> and ink water and big newsprint. And she said, these are your tools. And if I see you creeping up on the easel and on the, the, the work surface, I'm going to come over and I'm going to move you back. And she did. Because I would, you know, forget and I'd start creeping in closer. And she'd come over and physically put her hands on me and move me back <laughs> behind the line. And I was so felt so humiliated because I thought I was pretty hot shot, you yeah. know. Everybody said I was a good artist by that time. And I thought, you know, I was pretty hot stuff. And here she was. But you know what? The reason she did that, she told me later because she knew it bothered me, but she said, I knew that you would not be able to stand making ugly things for very long. So if I made you change your working method, mm -hmm. you would find a way to make beautiful things the right way. Right. And what I learned was, if you use your whole arm to draw, you can make things that are just so... Much more expressive. Expressive yeah. and important and worthy compared to little right. pretty drawings. Yeah. And it, so she really opened a huge, door, important door for me. Yeah. I would have to say that it influenced my sculpture as well, just mm. that lesson. Oh. Yeah. And that's uh, in San Francisco. And then you get accepted to, uh, what was the name of it, fashion? L.A. Trade Tech. L.A. Trade. Um, so you go back to L.A. Are you living at home in L.A.? No. Where are you it living? was too far. I'm living in an apartment oh, in right. West Side. West yeah. Side. How are you paying for all that? Job. What kind of job in L.A.? I think I worked at a department store downtown. Okay. One of my jobs was managing a pool hall, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. I loved pool. I didn't pool. know about that. You know I like to shoot pool. Yep. So you do the year and a half, and then you do uh, six more months in what? Okay, so this is relevant to your kid, the kids, the stage they're at right now. And I also want to say to you that you never know how things are going to unfold. 
I mean, you know that sort of, but I know you want the best, like my dad wanted the best for me and my mom. I'm sure they were watching me and just hoping somehow it was going to turn out okay. So after going through school and doing well at it, getting my certificate, which by the way, was recognized by the Fashion Institute of America, I could have gotten a job anywhere. So I had to get a job. So I got a job with a sportswear manufacturer as a junior, as an illust- junior illustrator. And this was in Los Angeles. And this was in LA. Yeah. And at first I was excited about getting a job with a something, you know? Yeah. And so I worked at the job for about six months. I was basically by myself sometimes in a room doing catalog illustrations. And what that meant was somebody, clerk, person, who probably got paid less than I got paid, which wasn't a whole lot, would bring in garments on hangers and hang them on a rack. And I would do simple drawings of them for the catalog. And then I started talking to someone about, probably in personnel, about what my dreams were, you know, How could I go about getting into the design end of things? Oh, well, you work your way up and maybe after five years, you can become an assistant junior designer. Mm -hmm. That's like this little place that's in New York or somewhere, you know, that this was a global company. So I made a big mistake, but I didn't know at the time. I didn't know. It was a job in the business, in the industry. That's all I knew. It had nothing to do with what I was dreaming of. And for me at the time, five years seemed like the rest of my life. So I worked, but I worked away at it, wondering what I should do next, make a move of some kind. And then I got a letter in the mail from an old college friend of mine who was going to be one of the people in charge of an archaeology dig out of University of British Columbia Hmm. in Castle Guard, British Columbia, because the the hydro, Canada Hydro, was going to flood this valley build a dam mm-hmm. and flood this valley. And so they had a law where they had to go in and document, uh, find and document all the, the remains of old towns and cultures before they could flood it. So that was what was going on. And that just sounded like a real adventure to me. So I gave two weeks notice. And I actually spent two weeks thinking about it, probably mm-hmm. a month thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And then one day I was just so tired of LA, tired of being somehow on the wrong you know, this wasn't what I dreamed of. Yeah. Right. And so I just actually, I just sat down and wrote a letter back to John and said, okay, is it still available? And he said, yeah. And uh, by that time, it was, I, I gave two weeks notice and I pretty much had to pack up and, you know, everything I didn't take with me, which was very little, I'd left at my parents' house 30 miles away. I got on a bus and went up and met them all at Castlegar. And it was and where is that? a beautiful summer. North of Washington State in the mm-hmm. west side of the Canadian Rockies. It was not it was only about a hundred miles north of the border, probably north of the Idaho panhandle, I'm thinking. And how, how long were you at that? So all summer. It was a, it was all it was summer. summer thing. So okay. it was like three months. And so after that, what are your feelings? What are you thinking? Well during that summer I started filling sketchbooks with buildings. <laughs> huh. That's that, why that wasn't I, part of your job. That was No. So when you're coming out of that, what are you thinking? Do you, are you planning anything? Or I By that time, I was so excited. I, by the way, I was also reading, I think that was the summer that I read Alice Shrugged. Ah, okay. So Ayn Rand. So, you know, I had read The Fountainhead like a year before, a year okay. and a half before. And, you know, for me, a book as thick as Alice Shrugged is a project. So I had lots of time, free time. Did you read that at the... I, th- I believe that's when I read it, in, over in, that summer. In Canada? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's. I must have taken it with me because I don't think they public. I don't think they allow it in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Um, At this point, you're what twenty? Probably nineteen and a half. You're done a year and a half. Boy, I got. I was moving pretty fast for a couple years there because Um, then you were born when I was twenty-one. I think twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-two, maybe. I I remember that though that when I was nineteen, somebody was talking about oh me getting married and having kids. I said nah. Yeah. No. <laughs> you, you knew pretty quick that, that wasn't your path. It was not part of my program at yeah. all, but it turned out having you was like the best thing that ever happened to oh, me. So. thank you. And I'm not rationalizing. Um, it really was. So where's your head at when you're coming out of Canada? I wanted to find out if there was a material, a construction material that was as clear as glass but had structural strength. So you could build like whole walls of glass. What? Why? I don't know, because How, I started designing buildings. Oh, did buildings have anything to do with Rand? I don't know. Did you start doing buildings and before you're doing drapery and clothes? And- no. Okay. No, I'd never really done buildings, but I 
is this the engineering part of yourself starting yeah. to come out? Yeah, so, so there's this engineering part of me, too. I really love math and science. I mean, I, I'm not just saying that. I actually like studying it. I like doing it. I always did well at it. Mm. I love that kind of information. I had a subscription to Scientific American for years, you mm. know. I just love to learn how things work. So I decided that the way that I could learn or go further with this would be to study structural engineering. And that's what I did when I got back to San Francisco. Okay, gotcha. Be something like 68, maybe. Yeah. You're heading back and... You are going to San Francisco now instead of going back to L.A. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I would not go back to L.A. Okay, so when I left L.A., I thought it was unfit for human habitation. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah. And um, it always surprises me that people still move there. Where did you go to school for structural engineering? At Heald Engineering College in San Francisco when I got back from British Columbia. Okay. And is that a was that like a two-year program or is that a, a one-year program or...? Well, it depended on what you were studying. It's, like, for um, example, I met Burgess there, and he was studying tech writing. Right. And for him, it was, a, I think, one or one and a half year course, something like that. But yeah. he was doing tech writing. Structural engineering was at least a three-year course. Yeah. Okay. You come back, and you find a place to live somehow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I always did. And um, and you're making a living somehow. Mm -hmm. You're studying structural engineering. In San Francisco at that time, there was also an objectivist movement. Yes. Um, and you got to see, just before I forget, uh, you got to see Nathaniel Brandon and Rand, Ayn yeah. Rand yeah. speaking yeah. live. Yeah. And the, the people you're getting to know are starting to be some objectivists, yeah. including Burgess, who's my father, biological father. Who was my best friend at college because we'd sit and talk whenever we had time. Right. We'd sit and talk for hours yeah. about ideas ideas which i'm fascinated with right. too. i think um, there's a gene for it you got a double hit from both your parents you're studying structural engineering you're getting to know people in san francisco and while that's going on is that when you become pregnant with me and then i'm born in yes. that time yes. period i was actually enrolled in the next semester i finished one year at healed oh, engineering okay. It was actually the last six months of that one year, not quite six months, five months maybe, that I did the graveyard shift and I was yeah. a total wreck. But I recovered, of course, and then I had re-enrolled for the next year. I think I started in, in the summer. And then it was in the fall that I found out that I was expecting and I decided that I was going to take a big leap of faith and try, <laughs> and try to raise this kid, That's whoever it was. And boy, did I get lucky. I it's mean, a huge decision at such I, a young age. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I still, maybe some psychologist would, would figure out why I decided that. It wasn't certainly any religious idea at all. It was, I don't know. It was just a feeling I had. You were ready for that adventure, I guess. Maybe. And I, I just, yeah. Yeah. And, and anyway, so I'm glad, I'm glad I did decide that because I, I did have a choice, even though abortion was still illegal in America at that time, but I arranged things so that I had a choice. And then I uh, thought it over and chose to, you know, I, uh, two things I was terrified of. One, I thought, I don't know how to raise a kid. Like they don't give you a class for that, you know? And the other thing was that what if something's wrong? So I counted all your fingers and toes when you were born. And I just really, I always thought that I really lucked out that I got, because I thought, you know, what if he's a jerk? What'll I do? Like kick him out? <laughs> so what'd you do? Because I am pretty much a jerk. <laughs> no, you were, you were wonderful. Um, Not an angel, but you were just a great companion. Great. I wasn't horrible, I guess. Yeah. Addition to my life. Thanks for joining us for the early years of my mom's adventurous life. Join us next time for the motherhood years as she discovers sculpture as her true passion while she's also raising a child, me, to adulthood. It's quite an adventure.